Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. This is Chewing the Fat, uh, Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast series. I am Anna Lippin, social media editor for the Yale Sustainable Food Program. And today with us, we have Maridel DeBoer. Um, so Maridel founded Fresh Advantage after 25 years of experience in healthcare administration philosophy, where she recognized the urgent need to revolutionize traditional institutional food service. Her goal is to place nutritious, wholesome, and tasty food at the center of medical care and disease prevention, as well as workplace wellness and health promotion. Maridale's wide-ranging experience includes building long-standing relationships with local, state, and federal officials and forming partnerships with community-based organizations. She has a national reputation for assisting hospitals and other health care institutions to transform their food service programs. She also consults with philanthropic organizations that support food system change. Maridale is also a lecturer at the School of Medicine here at Yale, uh, where she teaches medical and nursing students and doctoral candidates in psychology. She regularly lectures at national conferences on hunger as a health issue and food as medicine. Um, today, she'll be part of a pa- panel entitled uh, Women Addressing Food in Healthcare. So I have a lot of questions ready for her about that. So welcome, Maridale. Oh, thank you, Anna. I'm so happy to be here. I'm very excited as well. Um, so you have had a long career on a lot of different um, sides of the healthcare story. And so I was wondering what exactly, what moment in time, what thing that you saw or heard that cemented your desire to pursue this new, this career path, an overhaul of institutional food service? Where were you? What was going on? Good question. Because I have done quite a few different things, but if I can start by saying there is a common thread And it's been always my abiding interest to do something important and impactful for very vulnerable populations in this country. And at the beginning of my career, I was practicing law with a very large national, now international firm in Washington, Washington, D.C. And I decided that I really needed to do pro bono work. And I did so by representing women who were incarcerated who were not receiving adequate care. And throughout my career, that experience really informed me about the few basic things when one is deprived of those things, one is truly suffering. So that the attention really came not from food per se, but from experience of human need. Fast forward to when I became a hospital senior executive about 15 years ago in a community hospital in Northwest Connecticut. I was working for a very terrific CEO who's a physician interested in prevention. And when we were looking at what we could do at this hospital and what kind of innovations and how could we make the patient experience better, he gave me part of that portfolio that I had that I look at different ways to do that. And the first thing that really stood out to me was the way we were feeding the patients in the hospital and, frankly, the employees in the cafeteria. So that was the experience where I was first and foremost hands-on. I did a complete global organizational change in the food service and and a lot of related programming. And that's what I carried into my consulting business when I started that four years ago after I left that hospital because I wanted to move on to do the work elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I was interested by what you said about your pro bono work. And I was wondering, do you see... um, Fresh Advantage as 
having an effect on local food justice initiatives like outside of an institution, outside of a hospital? I do. And here's how that works. It's my belief and the way in which my team and I created the model that I did create known as Plow to Plate at New Milford Hospital is based on a hub and spoke model. Mm -hmm. If one is going to acknowledge that food and nutrition must be put back into the healthcare equation, both in the sense of treatment, rehabilitation, but also prevention, as an institution, you need to change what you yourself are doing. And then from that, as a community hospital, look outward. Where can you go in the community? You're an anchor institution if you're a hospital. You're an influencer. Where can you go now that you've created a bully pulpit, you've cleaned up your own house, where can you go in order to impact systems and the lives of people in the community who may not be walking into your doors as patients, but about whom you should be concerned? And that's what we did there. We did a whole variety of programs for seniors, for youth, and we certainly did it in terms of our procurement and working with farmers. That hub-and-spoke model is something that I take and adapt for other clients of fresh advantage, most notably now here in New Haven for Connecticut Mental Health Center. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you say, I I think it's notable that um, you talk about fresh advantage as a consultant group because you have experience with philanthropy. um, And so I was wondering what are the benefits or what is the reasoning behind um, having Fresh Advantage not be a nonprofit? Like, what are the pros and cons of running um, an LLC versus an, a nonprofit? I think that the advantages are that I can be very flexible in terms of working with a whole range of organizations. A lot of that has to do with having been somewhat of a risk taker in my career path. I did leave a successful law practice with a major national firm because I wanted something that would be more meaningful to me. Frankly, I wanted to set a really good example for my children. I wanted them to be really proud of what mom did. Not that it's a bad thing to represent financial institutions. I was a banking lawyer. But I thought I had more to offer than just that. So that by, and then having gone and I had a a company before I took the position in a community hospital where I served as an advisor to philanthropies, corporate philanthropies, who were doing work in healthcare. And I I was able to do that because I had exposure to the corporate sector through my law practice. And I, I came to see that they could really be tightening up their mission-based giving, and making it something much more impactful than maybe just an extension of marketing or brand identity. So then going into being an administrator in a community hospital, using my legal background, my administrative experiences, I gained a whole host of other skills knowing and understanding how hospitals work. So I feel that I'm in a position wanting to make an impact on food systems and certainly on food insecurity, which is an area that I do a lot of advocacy work in. I can really flex and work with many, many different people. I have teams that I can bring in, nutritionists, chefs, farmers, depending on what the need is for a particular client. I love the challenge of that. I love the flexibility. And it's a really efficient way for me to operate and hopefully make an impact. Mm -hmm. 
Could you talk a little bit about the economics behind um, convincing institutions that Fresh Advantage will help them cut costs? Because normally when when uh, people talk about bettering food um, in institutions, a lot of the charges that are levied against them are that it's going to be more expensive. How do you combat that? Combat that by keep it simple rule. Uh, we are so accustomed in this country to having an overabundance of food, an overabundance of choices. Not all of them very good, as we found out now that we have a serious obesity epidemic on our hands. But by shifting the focus onto quality of ingredients and simplicity so that you can do sourcing and procurement of certain really important basic ingredient, uh, ingredients in a way that you're really capitalizing on, on the nutritious value and if they're grown locally or regionally, helping the local economy. I think it's really unnecessary to hand a patient in a hospital a sheaf of paper from which to choose like 42 different things. First of all, most people don't even read it. They don't feel well enough. And it's really not necessary. A few good things, well-sourced and well-prepared by culinarians, goes a long way. And you can stay within budget. I'm also not a believer on the retail side of these massive food courts. You go in and there's every which way you turn, there's just food, you know, falling out of the ceiling and the doorways. And I think that that is very problematic in our country and certainly in hospitals when we really ought to be focused on quality and nutrition and to just inundate people with food, again, not all of it good, is very wrong-headed. It takes a very visionary CEO and COO and a leadership team to do that and to say, we are going to work at this. We are going to change this because this is part of what we ought to represent as a matter of principle. But in addition, you can also make sense of it by keeping it within budget. And you have to, or nobody's going to really be working with Fresh Advantage if I'm not able to do that for them. And so in the shift from more processed, a huge amount of options, to a few simple, good quality dishes, was there, is there a lot of pushback by patients that are used to maybe seeing a certain type of food on their plates um, and then are now seeing another type of food? Did, how much... Uh, do the patients in um, these institutions, for example, mirror all the images we're seeing now of school children throwing out healthy lunch options, if at all? Well, I'm a little suspicious of those, yeah. <laughs> those images and who is yeah. pushing those images out into the media and what the media is doing with them. I have worked in schools, and to be sure, there are challenges in every institution because we have a food system in this country that's off kilter. It's been off kilter for a long time. Having said that, I believe that you don't just simply change the food when you go into an organization. You understand that you are confronting significant cultural change and organizational change. So you have to work at every layer of the organization. You have to have a very good plan. You have to understand you need to market it. You need to educate people. We, did, we do that depending on the institution in a wide variety of ways through standard communications kind of exercises in newsletters with branding the programs with clever names. But we also do it by activities and gradual change, having tastings, getting people's opinions, inviting people in to be decision makers, 
having them put forth ideas through surveys. And so you're achieving a process whereby you're not coming in depriving people of things that they like or that their taste buds and their palate have become accustomed to, but something more important. And we really don't shake our finger at people. And as Michael Pollan, he says, don't ever use the N-word nutrition because everybody will run the other way. So we actually don't do that. We, um, I mean, we do it in conversations with dietitians and nutritionists and physicians, but what we do is we, we talk about great, delicious food. Where did it come from? And we do a lot of collateral and marketing and education. It's like a full surround. Uh, there's a term for it, the social ecological model of change. You say that to somebody and they're halfway asleep by the time you, you know, finish your sentence. But that's really what we do. We size up the situation and say, where can we intervene here? Where, where's there a hospitable voice, somebody that's an advocate? And we bring all that to bear. And then we make a stepwise change process where we're not hammering people with change. But we're introducing them to new and wonderful things. You spoke about uh, consulting with dietitians. Who else within a hospital um, do you have to have prolonged conversations with to try and institute these changes? How involved are doctors, nurses, um, everyone involved in the whole system? The first people I talk to are plant operations, the electricians, (laughs) the plumbers. They're my guys and girls sometimes. I want to know who makes the building run. What am I dealing with in terms of the day-to-day activity of keeping a very complicated building safe, sound, and running? And how am I going to establish a rapport with them in terms of getting things done? Next, I do the hardest people to reach, not in terms of Medical students and residents now, though they're really busy, they're really crying out for information in this kind of change. I know that because I teach at the School of Medicine, um, and and they found me. You know, they they invite me, but um, I do think nursing is the other critical piece. Nursing is the backbone of the hospital. You're there. You need talented surgeons. You need, but you need nursing care. That's why you're there. You have something serious enough, and nurses are just fabulous. They're in direct patient contact. And I would say they're my closest partners in the change. Obviously, it goes without saying that I wouldn't be there in the first place if the CEO and the C-suite executives weren't on board. But they're going to delegate. You know, they'll help me. I'll say, I need this, I need that, I need an introduction to this and that, you know. And that's fine. But um, they're hiring me to do a job. And they trust that I, I know what I'm doing. And that I'll ask the right questions, and if I need help, they'll give it to me. But, you know, I'm not sending them 52 emails every day. It's my job to go figure it out. Mm-hmm. I think physicians are, over time, going to understand the importance of this. As we shift to a different model of care and different reimbursement systems and an emphasis on better care, better quality, lower prices, they're going to understand that the whole balance the mix of care modalities will need to include attention to food and nutrition because you'll just defease an intervention like a surgery or a medication if somebody goes home and they're not they're not eating well they're going to get dehydrated they're going to relapse they're going to show up back in your hospital with a whole host of complications so we need to work at that over time that's why I'm so grateful to be working at the school of medicine and working with people who are the next generation of caregivers. Have you seen 
um, if it's the type of hospital where people can be released and it's not a long-term stay, um, have you seen quicker rates of release, you know, people getting better faster uh, because of the food that you serve? That's a very good question. We don't have a lot of really good evaluation mm-hmm. data on that. The term of art in uh, hospital speak is the length of stay. I can tell you observationally, yes, we have seen people who are healthy when they come in, pretty healthy, and are fed well while they're there, um, and attention is paid to their nutritional status. Observationally, I have seen that happen. They feel better quickly. There are fewer issues with their GI systems kicking in again. These are especially surgical patients. But the problem we have now in this country is that we have, and the data that we see with respect to people 65 or older, there is a very significant percentage of them being admitted. They're malnourished when they're admitted. They are coming from the community, and they are unwell in terms of their nutritional status. That's really difficult. That's why at New Milford Hospital, where I was an executive, we were very aggressive about working everybody up in terms of nutritional status because we're trying to figure out how can we stabilize people quickly? How can we avoid re-emissions? And one of the critical things we had to figure out was their nutritional status. So SOP, standard operating procedure, we would call in and have that. Now that one could argue that's another expense, but you know what? It's a lot less expensive than a readmission if you do that work in the hospital and if you incorporate it into discharge planning, another very critical thing. Because when elderly people go out, you have to know the circumstance into which they're returning because they will come back dehydrated and malnourished if there's no attention to their food support system. In Planning fresh advantages take um, um, all the institutions and what institutional food should look like. Have you looked at other countries' institutions and their food systems? That's a great question. I have in the UK. There's a, a parallel movement in the UK, many thanks to Healthcare Without Harm and its founder, Gary Cohen, who was just awarded a MacArthur. So happy for him. Very well deserved. So Healthcare Without Harm is an organization that's been around for about 20 years, and it's all about cleaning up hospitals. They're big polluters. They're not doing a good job with food. Many of them, even children's hospitals, had McDonald's in them until there's been a movement to try to get them to end those contracts. Um, so they work internationally. I've worked with them since for, for at least about 15 years. Um, and I really believe in their work, and it's a way to align with a national and international organization that's doing the work in other countries. I don't think there's any perfect model elsewhere. I think this is a huge challenge. The bigger the hospital, the bigger the challenge. Um, but I do think that there is a, a real awareness that's expanding that we, we really need to focus on this. Some countries have very, very radically different ways of, of caring for people. If they have universal health care and whatnot, you have fewer issues having to do with some of the social determinants that we see because people have care. They don't have the fragmentation that we do even with the Affordable Care Act. So in those countries, you sometimes see different results as a combination of better primary care and better overall universal insurance. So you just said something about the bigger the hospital, the harder it is to implement. Is there a perfect sort of size community or size hospital 
to um, get help from Fresh Advantage? What are the different size communities and what are their different characteristics that make somewhere a good candidate for a Fresh Advantage overhaul? I don't think the size, I mean, I've worked in all different sizes of mm-hmm. hospitals. I just know that when you get to a large scale where you have 1,700 beds, you have a different set of issues on how you're going to handle that. Um, then if you have at Connecticut Mental Health Center, we have 42 inpatient beds. Those people stay a very long time because they have serious mental illness and they, they need care over a long period of time. So you have to size up the situation and say, what are the variables? What can I do here? One size fits one. <laughs> in this business, believe me. So you have to be uh, pretty quick on your feet and a pretty creative thinker. There are certain fixed dynamics that that you see everywhere in terms of um, in terms of certain you know procurement patterns and things. But I think that um, one thing that might benefit the very big hospital is some kind of a breaking things down to greater simplicity would would even increase efficiencies. I'm hoping we'll see that in more big academic university hospitals, which are the biggest, you know, really in the country. So I have a question about, um, you mentioned the Affordable Care Act, and I was wondering how much of this problem that we have between food and health care can be answered by private enterprise, and at what point does the government need to step in and try and institute some changes of their own? How much can we do without public policy to support it? Well, we have some very interesting public policy that was part of the Affordable Care Act that could go a very long way to addressing food insecurity in the community so that we don't get elderly people or anybody else coming in in a malnourished state. And it is what is known as the community benefit rule. Tax-exempt hospitals, about 60% of hospitals in the United States are tax-exempt. It's in the nature of a social contract that the government said, Tax-exempt, that's fine, but you have a responsibility to give back to your community. That started out to just be charity care, but as public insurance and now the Affordable Care Act expanded insurance company, that requirement has been broadened to include the overall welfare of the community. I and others were very, very active in advocating in a rulemaking process to implement new provisions in the ACA that said, you got to focus on prevention, you can't ignore minorities, and this is really about taking care of the community and community health in a global sense, not just your own patients. So in the rulemaking process, implementing that legislative language, we formed a coalition and were very successful in getting language in there saying, this includes addressing social determinants of illness, specifically access to adequate nutrition and other social conditions that impact health. There is a fabulous opening for hospitals to do a better job engaging and funding in communities with their dollars, their community benefit dollars, for remediation, the building of systems that will put an end to the damage that social determinants do to our health. Okay. Um, So your your organization um, is very multifaceted. You have healthcare services involved, research, food service operations, nutrition, health education, chef, culinary type people, and food safety. So how do you go about hiring people um, at French Advantage? And then within that, once you get to a hospital, how do you get the chef to talk to the plant operator? So what I do is I have a bank of people that I work with. 
and they're all independent contractors because that's what they like to do. And I think this is the way of the world more and more. People like being able to flex their work schedule and, and work different and work smart and really efficiently. So depending on what any given situation is, I'll say, you know, I think so-and-so would be really great for this because we need a really strong education component. So I need a chef who's also a very good interpersonally a good teacher, and on many cases I call in my longtime colleague, Ann Gallagher, who will be at Pearson later today. Um, if I know that I'm going to have some really heavy-duty food safety training, I might have somebody who is very skilled in just doing that didactic and, and bringing, bringing that person in. So I, see, I go in and evaluate because a hospital may have some of those competencies already. They might not need it all. If I'm building out a, a culinary garden or a hospital-based garden, then I'll bring in some of the uh, farming people I know and who love to do this work in hospitals and can go in and plant it right, teach people how to maintain it, and go from there. So I, And I also can kind of get a sense of the, the character of an organization and who personality-wise might really work there. Actually, interestingly enough, it's, it is usually I who am <laughs> talking to plan ops because I've talked to a lot of plan operations people, and I know, uh, I hope I know how to be respectful and let them know that I, I do get it that they're some of the most important people in the building, and, and I know I need them. Yeah, you speak so, their language. Yeah. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about the specifics of uh, setting up Fresh Advantage in New Haven? Well, we, we're based here, and we work throughout New England mostly, and the first major project we did here was Connecticut Mental Health Center. And we've, again, we've used the hub and spoke model. We, interestingly enough, the hospital was built in 1966 without a kitchen because they thought, well, we can just get food from across the street at the big hospital across the street. Well, so since 1966, the food has under con they have a contract with the big hospital across the street, and they prep the food plate it, put it in a cart, bring it down the stairs, schlep it under a tunnel, take it up the elevator, put it on patient floors, and serve it. And I'll ask you, what do you think that looks like by the time it reaches? Yeah. Not pretty. Not pretty. In fact, I was very upset the first time I observed there. Um, but food was always considered ancillary in healthcare. That's its place. If you look at an org chart, it's not in the center in clinical care. It's over ancillary service. What is that? Environmental services, which means garbage removal and cleaning, laundry, and food. One of the first things I do when I go with any client is say, we're moving that out of there. We're putting it as part of the essential clinical operations. Now, we know that doctors may not like to think, surgeons may not like to think that it's as important as what they're doing, and we're not going to disabuse them of that idea. It's certainly not, but it's a part of a care paradigm. So let's think about it. Let's not try to weight it, whether it's drugs or surgery or physical therapy or food. Let's, let's just be respectful and include it. So um, that's what we did at Connecticut Mental Health. We created a, a very well-defined master plan. Two of the long-term plays where we had to build a kitchen, and that takes a long time, and we had to go through a procurement process because that hospital is a state mental hospital. It is managed by Yale School of Medicine Department of Psychiatry. So, but we had to go through a state procurement process. So those are two very long-term plays. So in the interim, 
we were parallel processing. We did tastings. We did water challenges. We eliminated the soda machines. We did all kinds of educational events. We started putting one-on-one nutritional counseling in our wellness center so that we're, we're readying the organization for change, and we're making change before these two big, you know, huge building blocks of really changing the inpatient service and the, the small cafeteria for employees. So we adapted the model. Very challenging there because the clients are indigent and they are very, very ill. Not just psychiatrically ill, but they have every comorbidity that the general population has, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. But because they are indigent or extremely poor, they have it way worse. So the intervention, and this is an adult community, all of what we did is more challenging because they have so few resources and they're older. But I have to say, we're making one heck of an impact. We have a very good story to tell. And the fact that it is such a challenging environment, when I look in the mirror some days and, oh, no, now we have to deal with this barrier, I say, but I get to go out and say, if we could do it here, it can be done. Do you have any specific stories um, of interactions with patients that you could share with us? I have a couple really touching ones. So we have a wonderful program called the Better Eaters Club that my colleagues who are presenting at Pearson this afternoon with me and I organized. It is a companion program, a group learning program for people who also are with Francine getting nutritional counseling. We understand that we can educate people about nutrition, but they can't execute unless they're given the tools to execute on those messages. We have group learning at every single one. We are cooking and preparing things with a snack or a meal. We're teaching very simple structural things. How do you build a pantry so that you can make it through the month? How do you use your food stamps? How do you create a budget? How do you go shopping? We have backpacks and we go shopping. We go on a field trip. We have peers involved, peers, people who are clients there, but who are in recovery and really are really good at that comparison shopping. So one day when I was just sitting in, I, I'm the glue. I mean, I'm the person that organizes it so that people like Ann Gallagher and Francine and an anthropologist by the name of Annie Harper can, can use their gifts to do what they do directly with patients. I just have to keep the train running on time. But I come in and I sit because I want to have some of the richness of it. I want to see the impact. And one day they were learning knife skills, which is very hard for people, and they don't have that skill. And one woman whose diagnosis is schizophrenia looked up. She stopped chopping. She looked at Sheffian, and she said, I don't hear my voices when I'm here, and I'm working with you, Sheffian, and I'm with these people. That's profound, and it's very touching. So what can I say? Sometimes one at a time is just fine. We, yeah. have, you know, we need to change a lot, but sometimes doing it one person at a time is really good. Yeah, I think there's definitely, you know, it's one thing to eat healthy food, and it's another to be able to be involved in the process of making that food. And it can be, at least for me, I can find that to be very meditative and and tranquil. Well, you get it then. Absolutely. And they just, the clients loved it. And now we have trained them to teach with us. And um, we have other things that we've noticed. We're not psychiatrists or social workers. We've, We've noticed things that are people are doing in the home that might be harmful. And 
we're able to circle back and to the psychiatrists and clinicians and talk with them about it. And they're like, really? That's what's going on? And we say, yes. There's something on the atmosphere of preparing food and the process, as you said, meditative and warm. And I have to say my colleagues, one big reason I work with them is that they're very loving. They have big hearts. And you need a big heart to work with people who have pretty rough lives. How do you interact with food on a daily basis? Do you cook at home a lot? How how much um, is food important to your mental health or to anyone's mental health, not just someone in an institution? It's really important to my daily life. I look forward. My end of the day is about first walking my little dogs. <laughs> they eat pretty well, too. And then preparing my dinner. I love it. Mise en place, organize it up. I forget about all the crazy stuff. Somebody that's level to harsh criticism about what we're doing or doesn't like what we're doing or um, some frustration I've had, chop, chop, chop. (laughs) And I relax. I relax. And I have a really good meal. I prefer making my own food. I love eating out. I have lots of friends who are chefs. Don't get me wrong. I love, love, love it. But I'm pretty particular about where I'll go. But I... And I love making dinner parties. I want everybody around. My grandchildren are coming for my birthday, a big birthday coming up, Happy and we're going to cook dinner. <laughs> Three little boys in the kitchen. That takes a lot of patience. Wow. That's <laughs> that's very generous of you. Um, and how much – what do you think of all of the current articles that are being written about the connection between things like our gut bacteria and our mental health? Um, it's sort of the trendiness of, of that um, – way of thinking? What do you make of that? Well, you used a good word, which is trendiness. Yeah. There's trendiness in every, you know, aspect of culture. Um, Because I'm not a scientist, and I am not a psychiatrist, I won't make a scientific judgment about it. I'm very glad that there is a lot of interest in it, though, because I think the more questions we ask, the more creative our thinking will become. Challenge all assumptions, right? I love people who challenge all assumptions. Um, I do think we may be surprised that there may not be super profound scientific impact, but I think from what I learned from my colleagues who are scientists in our, and in the neuroscientific unit um, at Connecticut Mental Health, that there are probably some very important things to that relationship. And we'll see those results coming out over, I would say, the next five years. This is not the kind of science where you, you know, have a hypothesis one day and you have an answer six months later. This is long-term study. But I do do think we have to be careful that the studies are done very well. Certainly our, our colleagues at CMHC and at Yale have the capacity to do that, that they're some of the best in the world. So we have to be careful um, about the quality of that science. But I think we'll we'll start to see things. I mean, for openers, we've already done the reverse experiment in this country. There was no study design saying we should grow commodity products and shove it through a processed food, industrial food system. Look where we ended up with that. So, you know, when people say to me, well, don't you want to study whether it's better to, like, do this these healthy foods and what, and I'm like, what? You know what? I don't think we have that much more time to study it. Let's, and I'm quoting actually Mike Cernak, the CEO of CMHC, who said, "What? We already did the reverse experiment. Let's just try to shift over to whole foods, freshly prepared from scratch. Not such a radical idea." 
And is that the diet you prescribe to, just whole foods, no processed foods, et cetera? Yeah, that's as simple as it can be. I, I think that we overcomplicate some of the diets and advice that people are receiving. You know, whole foods grown well, the whole sustainability piece there is incredibly important. I mean, side note, we have a real debate going on with our dietary guidelines in this country at USDA, but I am a firm believer in how your food is grown is critical. And simply prepared, not loaded up with a lot of crazy things. Um, some fats are good fats. And flavor. Flavor. How are you working to educate current students at the Yale School of Medicine about the importance of food? Because I know that the School of Medicine recently had a sort of overhaul in how, in how they're teaching um, and the courses that are required of its students and how they're integrated. So how is food figuring into that? Well, the course in which I'm involved was actually not a part of that initiative. It was developed by the students themselves last year who felt that they were not getting enough learning about the social determinants of disease, and they created their own course entitled U.S. Health Justice. And it takes, they're so resourceful, it's impressive they even had the time. They sourced faculty from across the university, and importantly, across the community. And they created a curriculum, got it approved, not for credit, and they hold it on Saturdays, where they do a really deep dive into the various de social determinants. I am responsible for the food insecurity and health impacts piece. And they have other experts and researchers talking about things like housing and other drivers of disease that we see um, causing so much, so much chronic disease and some other acute and to some extent, we're getting more science on the relationship between depression, in particular, as a psychiatric disease, and food insecurity. So um, that teaching is a combination of practical, where we bring in people who are affected. This is how I handle my class. And affected by food insecurity, and then um, I provide the, the literature and the research and some of the systems analysis of ways in which they, as physicians, might be able to impact this from, you know, interviewing a patient and asking validated questions about food insecurity to see if they're looking at somebody who's food insecure to the kinds of things they can do to impact their hospital and, and in other ways in society from a policy point of view. So... Um, they, I, uh, their next round, they hand it off to another group of students, and they're going gangbusters. And I am, I have so much hope for the future because of these young people. I am very hopeful. That's incredible to hear. Um, and another question that is going back to something I asked earlier. So you've been um, involved in high-level administration for a long time. I was wondering if. Uh, you've had any experiences that have been different because you're a woman. I know that as you know, doctors have a long time ago were all male, nursing was a very feminine profession. Now those are changing. Um, but I was wondering if you could speak to in your long experience if you've ever faced pushback or felt somewhat discriminated against um, and because you're a woman. Well, we have more and more women in healthcare leadership. Um, I think that's very promising. I'm in an unusual spot in administration because I was always the person tapped for innovation. Uh, also at the, at the hospital in New Milford, we developed an integrative medicine program. 
it was very, very challenging um, to have those complementary or integrative providers credentialed by the medical committee. That's a very tall order. We were able to accomplish it. I think, so it's a little hard for me to answer that because I was always taking on things that I was going to get pushed back anyway. So to separate gender from that is is a little tricky. But I will give you one, one anecdote in one environment where I was doing a a change, and there was dissatisfaction, this was a long time ago, with the existing food service management company. You know, some hospitals don't operate their own. They have a contract with a company. And they were, I don't know whether they were aware I was a lawyer or not. At any rate, their non-performance was significant enough that I was able to call a breach. And they went after me big time tried to get me fired. I actually saved the letters because I guess I had the prescience to say that maybe someday I'll look at this and think it's really funny. I did not think it was funny at the time, but I had a defender, and that was the CEO. And uh, so I don't know. If I were like a six-foot-two guy in a suit, and you kind of got to wonder. And I know they were very embarrassed when um, they had an exchange with the CEO. And he was a really great guy, and he said, I guess you really don't know who you're dealing with when you're dealing with Mary Dale. But we don't back down, and she is a lawyer. And they were like, their jaws dropped, you know. So that's kind of like, you kind of have to ask yourself, ooh, that might have been gender-specific, you know, a decade ago. But as I said, it's a complicated question for me because I do put myself in places where I am trying to make change because that's what I want to do. So that that makes it hard anyway. <laughs> You're looking for trouble. I'm yeah. always looking for trouble. Good kinds of trouble. Absolutely. And my last question, where are you looking for trouble next? What is the future of Fresh Advantage? Are you looking to expand further? Um, what are the challenges you're facing now? Yes, I'm always looking to expand, but I'm also looking to do more and more policy work. The community benefit role that I told you about, um, I'm now involved with um, – a group of other researchers and people that have been working for a very long time on this question of hospital accountability and responsibility back to communities. And for, the good news is we were just very generously funded on a four-year grant to look at those practices nationwide. And I feel that with my background as a lawyer, as an advocate, and then on the operations side, I mean, I've scrubbed out really disgusting refrigerators, and I have the pictures to show it, <laughs> you know, with the hairnet and all. So... I began, and I do that deliberately because I think it matters for you to be taken seriously and have any authenticity that you're willing to do the work that you would ask someone else to do or that they have to do. So I'm looking to do more and more policy work and advocacy on that and to stay and to make the healthcare sector an ever better place for people and to promote prevention. All right. That's a great final answer. Thank you so much, Randall. Oh, thank you. I look forward to this afternoon at Pearson. Absolutely. We're going to have some good food. I'm very excited. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.